0: If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 and following. We will resume our study in the Sermon on the Mount, begun now weeks ago. And because it has been some time since we have visited with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we will revisit a few of those verses from our past studies in the time that we have together. We have quite a passage before us challenging in a number of different ways, clear in its teaching. You'll not have difficulty in understanding what Jesus intends for us to do on the basis of this passage. But if you're not careful, you will evade the full force of this passage, which would be a great mistake this morning. What Jesus calls us to is heavy. It is weighty. It is substantial. So may God give us ears to hear what the Lord has to say. If you found your way to Matthew 5 and verse 43, I invite you, if you're able, to stand out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 43. Here's what the Bible says. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. We began back some weeks ago now in this section of the Sermon on the Mount in verse number 17. Understand the Sermon on the Mount begins in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, but there's a distinct section of the Sermon on the Mount that concludes in the passage that we just read. It begins in verse number 17. There, Jesus said, Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So, Jesus does not come to tear the Old Testament out of your Bible. Jesus does not come, in a sense, to void the Old Covenant. Jesus comes to fulfill every expectation of the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill every moral expectation of the Old Testament. Jesus was perfect. Jesus is perfect in his righteousness. There isn't a single sin to the account of our Savior. Every moral or ethical expectation in the Bible, Jesus fulfilled perfectly in his earthly ministry. There is not a spot or a blemish on his earthly record. Jesus is perfection. Jesus met, he fulfilled the righteous requirement of God's law for us in absolute perfection. Even more than that, Jesus fulfills the ceremonial requirements of the Old Testament. Whereas certain ceremonies are a part of the Old Testament experience, Jesus has fulfilled those requirements. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus has fulfilled all of the ceremonial requirements of the Old Covenant. There are other ways that Jesus has fulfilled the expectation of the Old Testament. God created Adam and gave him dominion or lordship over all the creation. And Adam fouled it up miserably, fouled us up in the process. But Christ has come as the second Adam, as the new Adam. And at the end of his earthly ministry, all authority, all lordship had been given Christ in heaven and on earth. Christ has fulfilled every expectation of the Old Testament. There's even a focus in Matthew's gospel as to how it is that Jesus fulfills the expectations that God has for the nation of Israel. We find Christ being called out of his exile to Egypt. Out of Egypt I have called my son. We find Christ for 40 days in a wilderness temptation, victorious on the other side, paralleling the experience of the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years between Egypt and the promised land. Land Jesus did not only what we could not do, Jesus did in his earthly ministry what the entire nation of Israel could not do. Christ did not come to void or to nullify the old covenant, but to fulfill it in absolute perfection. At the end of that paragraph, I'm still in verse 17, at the end of that paragraph, down in verse number 20, Jesus concludes that thought with these words, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There Jesus is teaching on two levels. Much the same way Jesus is teaching on two levels in the verse that concludes the paragraph we're studying together this morning later in verse number 48. Jesus says, if you are to have any hope whatsoever of entering the kingdom of heaven, If you are to enjoy the promises of the gospel after death or even in the here and now, you need to be a more righteous person than the scribes or the Pharisees. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous people in Jesus' day. They were understood by all to be people of good character, morally superior to virtually all others. They were practitioners of the law. They were experts in the law. And Jesus says, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Here are the two levels. On the one hand, the scribes and Pharisees were exemplary in their conduct, but what you need for kingdom access is perfection. On the other hand, the scribes and Pharisees, although exemplary in their behavior, had really fouled up their understanding of the Scripture. And so what Jesus does in every paragraph from there to now is to take a quote from the Old Testament to explain to us how that Old Testament quote is understood in its first century setting, and then explain to us what it means within a kingdom context, right? The most obvious example, we've looked at this a few times now, thou shalt not murder. They had interpreted that to mean, as long as I don't physically kill someone, I'm all good. But Jesus says, the spirit of the commandment itself says, that if you harbor hostility or hatred in your heart toward another person, you have violated the spirit of that command. You have broken the word of God, thou shalt not kill Paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, Jesus does essentially the same thing with a variety of different Old Testament commands. Now we come to verse 43 in our passage this morning. Jesus says here, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now clearly you have heard yourselves as a congregation, love your neighbor. It's uh, oft quoted even outside of the Christian community. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said to those listening, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and strength and mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor even as yourself. If you'll reflect back and think about those 10 commandments that Moses received at Mount Sinai, they are essentially a commentary on what it means to love God and to love your neighbor. Jesus said to those listening, you have heard it said You love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you've heard the love your neighbor version. Chances are you've not heard the hate your neighbor version. But in Jesus's day, there were those who sought to explain the commandment to love your neighbor in a way that made exceptions for or provided certain qualifications that made room for one's ability to hate their neighbor. There were actual religious writings in the days of Jesus' ministry in the centuries leading up to Jesus' earthly ministry that said just what Jesus cites here. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we would never be so bold or brazen as to say that out loud. Now, we will proudly practice that, but we will not say it in the same way that Jesus has stated it here. We have at least learned better than saying it out loud if we do harbor this ethic in our heart. Jesus says again in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That is the world standard, right? But he moves beyond that in verse 44 saying, but I tell you, love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you. Jesus calls upon us as kingdom people to do what seems insane according to this world system. And to love not only our neighbors, but to love without qualification and to love without exception. Even those who would position themselves against us as enemies. Now, if you'll think for a few minutes, you might chronicle your enemies maybe some know their enemies maybe some don't know their enemies maybe they're unaware of of their enmity or the way that they have hurt you in some way or the way their actions or behavior are in opposition to your values or your feelings your affections for someone or something but they have become over the course of time your enemy jesus says you are to love not only your neighbor but even your enemies so we have sort of both ends of the spectrum of people, right? You have friends, neighbors, and you have enemies, and then everyone in between. We're, we're left with no exceptions, right? Love everyone, specifically here your enemies, and pray for those, Jesus says, who persecute you. Now, I want to remind you, and we were saying this repeatedly early on, so hopefully this uh, strikes some a memory here. We have been saved, radically changed by Jesus. We're new people. We're not the same people we used to be. Jesus came to inaugurate in his earthly ministry and to constitute here in the Sermon on the Mount a radically different kingdom. Things are upside down in the kingdom that Jesus has established. We don't do things in the kingdom the way they do things out there in the world. And he's given us a radically different worldview in calling us into this kingdom. We are now to see things differently. This is who we are to be. Now, this would seem at the heart of the Christian faith and the kind of thing that people would understand widely. You would just assume that given the centrality of of love, the ethic of love in the Gospels, the ethic of love in the Bible in general, that this would be something well understood within the Christian community, and I cannot help but think that this is something that we have greatly missed. Something that is greatly missing in our Christian experience today, specifically in Western Christianity. And I just want to say to you that given all of the divisiveness and the craziness and things that are going on in the world around us, that that your added vitriol and hatred and spit and vinegar won't do anything to alleviate that kind of division, that kind of brokenness. But the kind of love to which Jesus calls us to in this passage is precisely what the world around us needs. To love not only our friends and neighbors, but to love those who would position themselves as enemies against us and even to pray for those who would actively participate in the persecution of us. That is what Jesus calls us to do. Now I hear preachers for heaven's sake, suggesting that other sorts of actions are the way to go. What Jesus has called us to do, and I want to say it again, what Jesus has called us to do is to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. That is the kingdom ethic. Now, we're looking for somewhere to hide, right? Because this is what we do when Jesus tells us to do something that's difficult or when we read a passage in the Bible that doesn't accord with what we wanted to do on a given day. We look for the loophole. We look for the out. And Jesus is about, in the next verse, to close all the loopholes. In verse 45, Jesus says that you are loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. It's the so that clause that will trip you up and give you problems this morning. You see, you're looking for the loophole. Where's the exception? Brother Wade, you don't know what he did, what they did, who they are, their background, their experience. There's no hope for them. You can't understand what this situation might be like. Jesus closes all of that. You love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying here, if I can unravel a bit of what he's stating in all of this paragraph, is that when the gospel of Jesus Christ gets a hold of your heart, when you are tr- truly, savingly touched by the gospel of Jesus, you will be radically changed. You will be radically changed. A citizen of a radically different community, kingdom, and, and have a radically different worldview, so much so that what seems impossible to you by the power of the Spirit becomes a real possibility. When you have been touched by the gospel, you will love your enemy, and you will pray for those who persecute you, and in doing so, will exhibit that you are indeed sons of our Father who is in heaven. We get down to verse 48. We'll address this again in conclusion, but... For now, I want you to hear again what Jesus says there. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We, we've, we've sort of we've found a loophole here. I hear it all the time in Christian conversation. The, loop, the loophole is what Jesus is doing there is requiring of us the impossible to help us to understand how desperately we need grace and mercy and forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. And that is true. It is true that the standard that God has called us to is so remarkably high for us, we can never truly meet that on our own. And so naturally, we desperately need the grace and mercy and forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. But that in no way lowers the standard expectation of God for his people. God is not in the gospel lowering the standard of righteousness to accommodate our wickedness in the kingdom. The purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ has never been and never will be to lower the standard of righteousness to accommodate our sinfulness. Rather, what Jesus is pointing out here for us is that when we are truly touched by the power of the gospel, it radically changes the nature and the course of our life so that we're empowered to love our enemies and to pray for those, even those who would persecute you. Y'all with me this morning? If you'll, if you'll hear well what Jesus is saying in this passage, it's heavy and it's hard to do, but it's no less the standard to which Christ has called his people. Jesus says in verse 45 that this love is modeled after the love that the Father has shown us. He says, you, you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God shows no partiality. God shows no favoritism. There is no prejudice in God. And so our love is to be modeled after that of the Father who sends rain on the just and the unjust and Son for the righteous and the unrighteous. Our system is different. We, we, we want to love those who we have deemed worthy of love. We invest in those that we have deemed worthy of investment. When you leave today and go to restaurants across the county, you're going to go and sit down, and if the wait staff does a good job, you're going to tip them generously. And if the wait staff does a poor job, you might not tip them at all. That's the way the world system works. But in the system that is the kingdom system, things are on its head. Things are on the contrary. Things are, are different. God's grace toward us is not based on our deservedness. You don't get God's grace because you deserve it. If you got God's grace because you deserved it, it would cease to be grace. And we don't give with generosity. We don't serve with generosity. We don't love with generosity because people deserve it. Because frankly, a lot of people don't deserve it. We, we give in a way that is modeled after the love, the generosity, the kindness the Father has shown us. You love like God loves. In verse 46, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't the Gentiles do the same? If you just love the people that love you, there's nothing exceptional about that. If you just are kind to the people who are kind to you. There's nothing exceptional about that. Jesus says even the tax collectors do that, and even in the first century, people didn't really like tax collectors, you know? Here what he's calling us to be, to do, is something exceptional, something that's unlike the world around us, to love like Jesus loves, indiscriminately, without prejudice, without exception, without qualification, without favoritism, without exception, to love lavishly, As God has loved us I think there are times when we probably use generosity toward the people that we see value in to alleviate the guilt of our Consciences like we know there's probably more required of us but if we can find an outlet for Generosity that accords with our personal system of values and makes us feel better about ourselves It helps us to soothe a guilty conscience God's called us to a standard that is altogether different than your personal system or the system of this world. He's called us into the kingdom, and the ethic there, the standard there is remarkably high. I I think that this last paragraph in this section we talked about earlier is, is really an example of Jesus elevating the standard, not lowering it. You see in verse 48, Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your father is perfect. Here, I I really think, in the the former passages, in the paragraphs between verse 17, where we began this morning, and and verse 38, where we've landed here, verse 43, rather, where we've landed here, each of those paragraphs, Jesus dealing with an Old Testament passage, I think that Jesus is just saying, you misunderstood what the Bible meant in this passage, let me help you to understand more about what that means. But here, the bar is raised, right? Which is perfectly sensible, Because grace is always greater than the law. The expectation of the new covenant is greater than the expectation of the old. The old covenant established in the law, but the new covenant established in grace. If anything is made clear in the New Testament, it is that grace is greater than the law. The standard to which we have been called is greater than a standard enjoyed prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Which is why, to me, it is so nonsensical that we would think somehow that the gospel intends to accommodate our sinful ways. Go back with me in your mind to these two levels on which Jesus is speaking. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Yes and amen, there is a sense in which Jesus is saying this standard you cannot meet on your own. There's not a soul in this room who can perfectly live up to the standard God's established for us. Even if at the beginning of this new year, you resolve within yourself from now on, I'm going to do everything that God requires of me. Number one, you won't pull it off. Number two, you still got a lifetime of sin debt that needs to be dealt with. You need the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus if you're to have any access whatsoever to the kingdom of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You must come to Christ in faith and repentance and ask for the forgiveness that only he can provide. That's the only way we have true access to a land that flows with milk and honey. But at the same time, Jesus is raising the stakes in terms of personal righteousness. Jesus is saying that what is required of you as kingdom citizens is even greater than what has been expected in times past. And it's a reasonable thing that more would be required because much has been given. We have been empowered by the presence of God's Holy Spirit. We have been enabled in ways that could not have been experienced. Otherwise, by the presence of God's Holy Spirit in us to do the very things that Christ has called us to do. Because of the abiding presence of God's Spirit in us, nothing is impossible. I don't mean that in terms of of your career success or whatever sports or athletic hopes and dreams you might have had, but in terms of personal righteousness, the sin that has so easily entangled you is now possible to overcome by the work and power of God's Holy Spirit in you. I simply cannot make sense of this approach to the gospel that says we now have license to sin because of what Christ has done for us in the gospel when what Jesus is teaching is completely contrary to that now the, now the standard has been raised and here what Jesus says is that we are to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect if you look at verse 48 in the context of the bible genesis to revelation it's really a command that occurs quite often in the old testament it sounds differently God says, be holy as I am holy. And here Jesus, God in the flesh, says, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I I wonder, of all of the resolutions that have been made over the past few days, how many of them have related to our desire, our goal, our ambition, our resolve to overcome sin in the year ahead. Most of them deal with things like weight loss and maybe even spiritual focus would be reading the Bible every day or reading through the Bible in a year or some sort of goal like that, all of those noble tasks. But I'm, I'm skeptical that there are a great many Christian folks in the American church anyway who are sitting down at the beginning of the year and chronicling their sin and praying that God would give them the resolve to overcome those sins in the days ahead. Now, I don't know where the disconnect entered in or how it came to pass. I certainly don't want to err on the side of legalism, but we simply cannot escape the remarkably high standard to which Christ has called us in the concluding verse of our passage. When you couple that with the heaviness of what he's required of us in the former verses to love our enemy, to pray for those who persecute us, Surely the standard of God for us is considerable, right? Y'all with me? I'm I'm burdened and concerned at the prevalence of sin and the respectability of sin within the Christian community these days. I'm I'm frustrated at every headline and every news report of some so-called celebrity pastor who falls in some great moral failure. And burdened at even the prevalence of certain sin within our own body. If anything is clear in the Sermon on the Mount, it is that we have been called to be salt and light, people of righteousness, separated and distinct from the world around us, in the world, but not of the world. And frankly, the reason at times the church has such difficulty at pressing back the darkness is that we're frankly not walking in the light as he is in the light. And there's so much connected to this whole notion, right? Like James says that, The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. That that a commitment to personal righteousness is a great factor in the power of our prayer life. What, What if we just gave ourselves over to personal righteousness? And God were to empower our prayers as we plead for the souls of men. What kind of gospel movement might be the product of a renewed, revived, refreshed commitment to personal righteousness in our life? There are in essence three commandments made in the passage that we just read, two that are stated explicitly and explicitly, and one that's implied in the closing verse. We are to love our enemies, we are to pray for those who persecute us, and we are to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called, to be holy, even as our God in heaven is holy. Would would you commit to that standard? Resolve today to walk worthy of that calling. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, the chance to spend these moments together reflecting on what you have called us to. God, uh, from the perspective of the flesh, it is an impossibility. Lord, you have made the impossible uh, not only a possibility but a reality in us in having empowered us by the presence of your Holy Spirit. God, I, I pray that right now you would make the gospel clear to any who might have until now misunderstood or not understood at all what you've done for us in your son. I pray that the seed of the gospel would find its way into the heart of every soul here. But Lord, we would know together as a people that our salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. That in his sinless perfection... He died as our substitute on the cross, that in great victory, though identifying with us in death, he rose again the third day, that he is Lord over all, that he beckons that all who would would come, that we would believe on him, repenting of our sin, trusting in him, God, that we'd be saved from such a crooked generation. I pray, God, that we would know and understand full well the consequences of that Repentance and faith We have come under the lordship Of jesus that he is Lord Over our life God, i pray that we would understand that we'd Come to this reality That what we will wish Desire needn't matter What matters for us as subjects Of king jesus Is what he desires for us God i I pray That you would break our hearts over sin You would help us, Lord, to be Holy as the Father is holy I pray that You would reveal To us, even in the next moments God, our secret sin As You search us over by the power of Your Holy Spirit, God, help us to Identify the sin that You would have us To mortify, to kill, to Fight against in our life God, grant us the power to overcome We'll give Jesus All the glory, be at work Among us in these next moments, God Save some, we pray build your church, expand your kingdom. Renew in us a gospel fire, and even where it's necessary, break our hearts over sin. In Jesus' name.